Well, as John has already mentioned, today we are continuing uh, to walk together through the book of Malachi. So if you'll remember, Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. It uh, records God's words to his people, the Israelites, uh, through his prophet, this guy named Malachi. And really the big idea of this book is that the nation of Israel has come back to Jerusalem. They were exiled in Babylon, away from their home, from the temple, and now they're back. They have their temple, they've rebuilt it, but instead of having their hearts filled with joy and gratitude to God, to bringing them back to their home, they've become cynical towards him. They've become cold. Perhaps in response to the trials and struggles of life, after the exile, they begin to question God, his faithfulness to his promises, uh, the benefits of obeying him, and and the reality of a future judgment. Uh, If you remember, the book divides into six kind of disputes or conversations between God and his people. Uh, Before Christmas, we looked at the first three of these, and now today we find ourselves at the fourth of these disputes. And so let's hear the passage now as Queenie comes up to read it for us. The passage is taken from Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 6. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Very well, thank you, Queenie. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? These words were penned by a man named Frederick Douglass. Douglas was born into slavery in the southern United States in the early 1800s. He eventually won his freedom and spent the rest of his life working for social reform and for justice. He's well known for his work in helping abolish slavery in the United States. Near the end of his life, Douglas wrote an autobiography in which he recounts some of the horrors of his life as a slave. And in one of 
the more dark moments. He, he writes about the tragedy of his grandmother's death. After a, a lifetime of bondage and servitude to her masters, uh, she was too old to be of use to them, and they callously uh, sent her off uh, to live uh, without a home in the wilderness and to die apart from her family. In response to this event, Douglas, in shock and despair, writes this question, Will not a righteous God visit for these things? It's difficult to read his autobiography and not have this question reverberate in our own minds. Will not a righteous God come? When we're faced with many injustices in our world, the many instances of those in power maybe abusing those not in power, don't we ask this question too? Or when we suffer injustices ourselves, God, will you not come and do something? We can become cynical, can feel as if what we believe about God and his goodness isn't really true. We can dismiss him. We can move away from him. Well, the title of today's sermon is, Will God Be Just? And what we'll see in Malachi is that uh, the Israelites were seriously doubting God's ability to right the wrongs they were seeing around them. For them, it felt like God wasn't there, and so they respond in doubt and cynicism. But God will not remain silent. God is going to address his people's hearts. And in doing so, we'll see that God cares deeply about justice. He calls us as his people to trust him, to remain faithful to him as we wait for his return and his justice. The passage is divided into three sections, so we'll look at each of these in turn. You can see them on your handout there if you have that in front of you. And so first, a big question. So verse 17 says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So Malachi starts by claiming that the people have wearied the Lord. And the people, of course, like we've seen previously, are not quick to admit their wrongdoing. They respond kind of defensively. How have we wearied him? We don't see this. What do you mean? Well, he responds by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Now, if you'll remember the historical context here, God's people have returned to their land after the exile. They've rebuilt the temple, and there was great hope that God was going to make good on his promises to them, that God would bless the nations through them, that God would come dwell with them. And so when this didn't happen, when things did not go as they had hoped, none of these prophecies seemed to be coming true. Uh, in, in fact, much of the opposite seemed to be happening. Instead, their neighbors, the surrounding countries were cruel. They were oppressive towards them. They often treated them unfairly, uh, abusively, taking advantage of them. There's even violence done to them. 
No one wanted the Israelites back in Jerusalem. And so with that in view, we aren't really surprised at the people's questions here. God, where are you? Do you even see what's happening? Look at all the evil going on around us. Don't you see how they're treating us? I think it's important here to say that this desire for God to act justly and to punish sin and evil is a good thing. God's people should praise him for his perfect justice and pray that God brings justice to his world. I think if all of us are honest, we all desire justice to be done. When we experience, uh, we experience pain and longing when injustice seems to thrive and go unpunished. I think we're often told that our culture doesn't want an angry God of judgment. You know, they prefer a God who's all about love and never steps on anyone's toes. But I think deep down, we all know we need a God who feels the sting of injustice just as we do. A God who sees and cares when evil thrives. One pastor puts it this way, He says, we know it would be a greater tragedy if God never judged evil. We would be terrified to discover he was an unrighteous judge who never condemned, never punished, never dealt with the crimes of the world, which is no judge at all. Uh, Justice or or righteousness is one attribute of God's character that's really highlighted over and over in Scripture. When the Bible calls God just, uh, it means that he will always act in accordance to what is right. He is consistent, consistently virtuous, and he himself is the final standard of what is right. Uh, We saw this uh, verse earlier in our service. Deuteronomy 32, 3-4 says this, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Not only is he just, but he also acts for justice as well. We read, for instance, in Psalm 146, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Uh, one of my favorite movies to watch around Christmas time is uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I'm sure many of you share my love for uh, this movie and that that wonderful novel. Uh, It follows the story of one man, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's kind of this wicked, selfish, grumpy old guy. And really, the the story is about his transformation uh, from this morally corrupt man all the way to this morally upright man. It's uh, truly a great moment at the end of the movie when you see him kind of spreading generosity and love instead of hate and selfishness. 
But friends, God is, is not like Scrooge. God never has a moral dilemma. God never needs more moral reform. He never needs to grow in being just. He never needs to learn to do what is right. We'll never have to question God's intentions or what his mood is at the moment if he's going to act for what is good. He has only ever done what is right, and he will only ever do what is just and good. And this is really good news for us if we are God's people. But of course, Israel had forgotten this. They had grown cold to God. They had moved past trust into sinful blaming. I mean, you can almost hear the sarcasm in their voice. Where is the God of justice? I don't see him. They conclude because of the presence of injustice in the land and the fact that God's not punishing it immediately. Well, something must be lacking with God. Well, whether we're Christians or not, we can often level this same accusation at God. You know, God, if you are good, why don't you end the suffering in our world? Why do you allow evil? Why don't you stop war and cancer and end poverty? A good question for us might be, can we trust that God is just and that he's doing what is right, both for us and for the world? Of course, we won't understand all things that he does, but can we trust him anyway? At these moments, our hearts need a God who names and judges and punishes sin. We need the God of justice. The good news for them and for us is God is going to respond to their accusation. Justice is coming, but it may not be exactly what they had hoped for. So then, point to a serious warning. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 3. God's response, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. That's a bit of an interesting response. Uh, God doesn't say, oh yeah, I I see these guys, I'll punish them, Uh, don't worry about that. Instead, he says, "Uh, you're concerned with justice? Well, I am coming. And not only am I coming, I'm coming to the temple. I'm coming to you. I'm coming with justice for you, Israel. How will they know that he's coming? Well, he's going to send this messenger, one who will prepare the way before him. Uh, That phrase, uh, prepare the way, uh, might be ringing some bells in your mind. Uh, Where have you heard this phrase before? Well, of course, when we get to the Gospels and we we read in Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Uh, This 
passage in Matthew. Instead of taking this prophecy from Isaiah, he just as easily could have taken it from this one in Malachi here. This was John the Baptist's role. He was to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus, to get everyone to, to be alert. The king is coming. Get ready for him. But notice, uh, there's another messenger there. And verse 2 says, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire uh, will come. If John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this first messenger, then the, the second messenger is the one who he prepares the way for. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's own son. And so God is not going to remain silent for his people's accusations. Jesus will come. He will right every wrong. He will bring things to justice. Christ is coming. But notice what Malachi says that his coming will be like. There in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The idea of standing before the Lord uh, this phrase kind of means standing up to him, to give account to him, kind of like standing up in court to be judged. The applied answer is no one, no one can stand when he comes. And so Israel, for them, this is a classic case of be careful what you wish for. You say you want justice. The judge is here and he's here for you. Come stand before him. How will the coming of Jesus, God's messenger, bring justice? Well, Malachi shows us uh, two ways here in these next verses. Uh, first, we see that he will purify. Look at verse 2 with me. For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Jesus will come to purify his own people. He will remove their impurities of sin so that they can be righteous and acceptable before God. His purifying it says it will be like a refiner's fire. Uh, this is the process of purifying metals. If you had kind of a really precious piece of metal, you'd take it, you know, maybe to someone who has a really hot furnace, and, and they put it, uh, in the metal into this intense heat. And the heat, once it gets to a certain temperature, causes all the impurities to rise to the top, and then they can be kind of lopped off and extracted, leaving the pure metal base. Similarly, this launderer's soap, uh, this was kind of this soap used to scrub really nasty stains out of clothing and, and different things, not like the small stains, but the really deep ones. Uh, the launderer would use this soap. He would then place them on rocks and either beat them with sticks or kind of trample them with their feet. So when Jesus comes to purify, this is the picture they should have. This is not going to be a nice, comfortable day at the spa. It's going to be intense. It's going to be painful. Because it's not the dross 
of metal or the, the stains of clothes he's getting rid of. It's sin. It's in their heart. I think this purifying is uh, kind of meant in a couple different ways. Uh, so certainly here in the text we see that this prophecy is for the priests of Malachi's day, the, uh, the Levites who have fallen into sin. The Lord promises that this messenger, like the refiner's fire, will burn away all their impurities so their people can be pure, so they can present good offerings to the Lord. And in one sense, this prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus comes, when he dealt with people's sins finally on the cross. But I think in another sense, it ultimately will be fulfilled when Christ returns to reign on earth in his second coming, where God will establish his throne on earth, where sin and injustice will finally be gone forever, and those who trust in him will be perfectly purified and glorified. In that day, all the priests will have no sin. All who trust in him will be clean and pure. But this refining isn't just reserved for that last day of judgment. Actually, when we move to the New Testament, uh, we see that Jesus, out of his love for us, is refining his people even now for our good. So, for example, we see in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Similarly, in James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The reality is, friends, that we are all those in need of refining, to be spiritually refined. Even those of us who follow Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we all have spiritual dross in our lives. We have unhealthy and unwelcome practices and ideas that need to be removed. And so scripture teaches that God allows painful experiences in the lives of his people, uh, the church, uh, not just to hurt us, not to kind of just teach us a lesson or to whip us into shape, but to mature us, to grow us, not out of his wrath for sin, but out of his love as a tender father for our healing, for our good. Let's be honest, though, we don't often like this. Our natural instincts tell us that the way forward in the Christian life is by avoiding pain at all costs so that we can get on with spiritual growth and maturity undistracted. But the Bible tells us again and again that pain is not an obstacle for us. It's a means of refining us, if we will let it. Uh, Dane Orland, uh, the author uh, of the book called Deeper, uh, says this about refining. When life hurts, we immediately find ourselves at an eternal, internal fork in the road. 
Either we take the road of cynicism, withdrawing from open-heartedness with God and others, uh, smirking at what we said we believe of God's goodness, or we press into greater depth and intimacy with God than we have ever known. He goes on, The encouragement of Scripture is this, Let pain propel you into deeper fellowship with Christ than ever before. He is in your pain. He is refining you. All that you will lose is the dross of self and misery that in your deepest heart you want to shed anyways. God loves us too much to let us remain shallow. How frothy and facile we would be if we all lived without a life without the pain of refinement. So many of us will be making New Year's resolutions at this time of year. And for Christians, of course, we'll, we'll have certain spiritual goals that we want, uh, different things we want to achieve or grow in in the new year. But what if I told you that your greatest spiritual growth this year wouldn't come from your highest and most happy times, but the lowest, the most difficult the most sorrowful? What if God's best and most glorious work in you this year won't be during times of peace and harmony, but seasons of walking through fire? Church, why not make a resolution to grow through the fire by God's help this year? Why not pray that God would refine and deepen you this year, that he'd even use your pain and your suffering to do so? Maybe invite a brother and sister to make this kind of resolution with you so that you can encourage each other that when pain does come, to move to Jesus, not away from him. So Jesus will purify then we also see that Jesus will judge his people for their sin. Uh, let's look at verse 5 together. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So while all the Israelites could see was the evil of these guys over here, uh, they missed the own evil that was going on in their own hearts. They themselves were defrauding. They were oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. They themselves deserved punishment and justice. But God hadn't missed it. God was going to bring them to court and sit as the judge, the one who sees and knows and church, the same thing can be said of each of us. Just as the overwhelming flood of news uh, may fill us with righteous anger at all the injustice that we see in our world, it also engulfs us with a thousand different ways we are complicit in injustice. Sure, we might not commit adultery, but we've lusted after others in our hearts. We might not steal from our neighbors, but we keep and we spend money on ourselves when we could give. We might not outright oppress the poor and refugees, but we've bypassed opportunities to love them and care for them and protect them as we ought. If we're really honest, 
Each one of us has not only seen injustice done, we've contributed to it by what we've done and what we've left undone as well. And so for God to be just, he must punish all sin and evil, even our sin and our evil. Uh, scripture clearly affirms there is a judgment day coming in the future where everyone will give an account for what they've done to God, where he will stand as a just judge, one who has seen all a person's done in life. In Acts chapter 17, Paul tells the people in Thessalonica uh, this in verse 30. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that is, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And friends, on that day, God will be entirely just in the judgment, and, and no one will be able to complain or appeal against him. As one commentator says, we want injustice and oppression to end. We want things to be fair, but that's the trouble. If it were truly just and truly fair, as we demand, we would be begging for mercy, for love, for forgiveness, for anything but justice. And so if punishment is what Israel rightly deserves, what can be done? Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, point three, a great hope. Verse six says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God says, I know you want justice. It's coming. But the reason you're not destroyed is, because, is not because you aren't unjust or because you've got it all together. It's because I am a promise-making and promise-keeping God. You are fickle. I am faithful. The great hope for Israel was that even though they deserved to be punished for sin, God had chosen them and he was working his plan to provide a way to save them though they did nothing to deserve it, just as he had promised. And that's the great hope for us as well. If everything was just and fair in the universe, we would be consumed by the fire of God's judgment for our sin and rebellion against him. But our hope is that God will not give up on his promise to redeem a people for himself. This messenger, Jesus, who would come to bring justice, would also come to be the justifier. This is what we see in Romans 3.25. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 450 years after Malachi delivers this prophecy, Jesus would come to take the punishment of our injustice on himself in what was 
maybe the most unjust act, the least fair act in all history. Jesus, who was sinless, became our sin offering. He who had never rebelled against his father, who had never done injustice, was brutally executed by evil men. He who had never known what it was not to love God perfectly was abandoned by him. On the cross, Jesus Christ walked into that courtroom with God. He stood between the perfect judge and you, the guilty person, and said, I will serve his sentence. I will serve her sentence. She can go free. What does the Jesus act of justice on the cross mean for us? Well, first, in this most unfair act in all of history, now those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus will experience mercy instead of judgment. It means there is hope for us today, no matter how far away from God you are. In the words that we sang earlier, by your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. That's what the cross achieves. Well, it also stands as a sign of God's justice for those who reject God's offer in Jesus. I wonder if you've thought about the reason God has not yet come and judged. 2 Peter 3, 9 gives us the answer. Says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand a slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we're really glad you've joined us. You're always welcome here. The Lord, though, extends full forgiveness to you today if you'll receive him. And then finally, for those of us who, like Israel, uh, struggle trusting God's goodness because of the injustice we see around us, or maybe because of injustices done to us personally, the cross shows that God cares about justice. In fact, no one cares more about injustice than God. Look at what Jesus had to do to pay for it. It can seem that justice is in short order in our world, but this is not reality. Reality is that justice is on the march. It's drawing near. We can wait knowing that the Lord is good, that the Lord cares about evil, that he can be trusted in the midst of the injustices that we suffer, and that when he comes finally, he will make all wrongs right again. Well, Frederick Douglass looked at the evil around him and pleaded, Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Well, friends, because of the gospel, we know that God sees that he finally cares about the injustice in our world because in Jesus he has visited for these things. He took the punishment for sin that we all deserved on the cross. And one day soon he will visit for these things finally when he returns. For he will make all wrongs right to rid injustice and evil once and for all. Praise God for his great justice and for his great mercy. Let's pray together.
Well, Father, we thank you for the comfort of knowing that we have you as our Father. A Father who always does what is right in the world and in our own lives. A Father who wants to refine us and purify us and grow us for our good. And a Father who spares us from the punishment of our own sin through your Son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as your church, we would be those who trust in you as you refine us. We trust you as we wait for that final day when Christ returns to make all things right. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.